This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. The Supreme Court says we can't send asylum seekers to Rwanda. The government, effectively, says it's not going to let that ruling stand in its way. And the man in charge of implementing that, new Home Secretary James Cleverly, apparently called the whole plan batshit. We've had face-offs between the executive and the courts before, notably when the Supreme Court decided that it was illegal for Boris Johnson to have prorogued Parliament. But that was a retrospective judgment. This one is different. With me to find out where we go next is Joelle Grogan, a legal academic and senior researcher at the UK in a Changing Europe think tank. Welcome back to the bunker, Joelle, because I think we had you on before a long time ago during the pandemic. I'm always delighted and excited to be back. <laughs> when you got the news of the ruling yesterday, you tweeted a picture of it, of the documents, and wow, were you surprised by it? Right up until the very last moment, we didn't know which way the court was going to go. There was a strong assumption or an, an argument that this is government policy, and typically the Supreme Court is quite deferential to government policy. But of course, we did have that very strong ruling in the Court of Appeal, which was deeply concerned about the state of human rights protections on the ground in Rwanda. So there seemed to be a very strong arguments on both sides. What wowed me as I sat freezing outside the Supreme Court yesterday was it was a unanimous decision, but beyond that, the strength of the judgment. It was an incredibly powerful judgment that came down yesterday. And what made it especially powerful? For me, two aspects in particular stood out. First off was the degree to which the Supreme Court emphasized the United Nations evidence. They cited extensively from the fact that there were ongoing concerns at a very systemic level. So there were ongoing concerns about the legal system in Rwanda, about judicial independence from political interference, about the likelihood that there would be legal representation given to asylum seekers. But even beyond that, they were deeply concerned about Rwanda's own commitment to agreements that it's previously signed on these kinds of deals. So between 2013 and 2018, Rwanda had an agreement with the Israeli government, a very, very similar agreement. It had the same commitment not to send people back to countries that they would face uh, threats to their life or to their th freedom. But they found many instances in which the Rwandan government quite secretly moved asylum seekers across the border to a neighboring country, whether then at risk of being sent back to their home countries. But another powerful piece of evidence, again, that they, they put forward was the fact that the Rwandan government seemed to continue refouling that, that wonderful uh, non-refoulement, if you want to be a fancy French accent, or non-refoulement uh, in, in British English, uh, which is the principle that, again, you can't send someone back to a country where they face threats to their life or their harm. 
But they found many instances in which Rwanda had sent people back to the countries where they faced such threats, even after they made the agreement with the British government not to do so. But what really stood out to me was how much they extensively cited the United Nations evidence of what's happening on the ground. What are the facts of the safety of Rwanda? The second element that stood out to me was even where the Supreme Courts uh, emphasize that this is a legal question, they are considering the law, they implicitly tackled a big public political debate that's ongoing right now that was spearheaded by former Home Secretary Suella Braverman, that the UK should leave the European Convention on Human Rights and that will solve all the issues of migration. They said very emphatically, it is not only the ECHR that embeds this principle that you cannot send someone back to a country where they face threat to their life, but in fact, it's in a number of international treaties that the UK is signature to, including a number of national British laws, national acts of parliament that again, guarantee and protect this right. Implicitly, we can then say that even if the UK decided to ignore the European Court of Human Rights, ignore the ECHR, or even leave the ECHR, this wouldn't make Rwanda safe. It wouldn't make Rwanda a legal policy for the government to be pursuing. So on present evidence, we cannot trust Rwanda, is what they were saying, and that there are multiple international and domestic laws that this plan would completely flout. Exactly. The government says that the Supreme Court found that in principle, sending asylum seekers to a safe third country would be lawful. Did it actually say that? According to international law, according to domestic law, it is not unlawful to send someone to a third country so long as it is safe to do so. So it is not unlawful to send asylum seekers to a third country to have their claims processed. It might not even be unlawful for a person to stay there if they're found to be a refugee. So a point that needs to be underlined is that the Supreme Court only found that Rwanda is unsafe for such a policy, not the policy itself is unlawful. This is important if we start to try and think about the alternatives. An alternative course the government could take, and I have no doubt they are pursuing this track, is to try and find another safe country with which to have this policy working. In the underlying law, the Illegal Migration Act, the 56 other countries are listed as safe, although I should emphasize that eight are considered safe for men only. The government could try and conclude a similar agreement with one of these countries. The challenge, and this is probably why we've only seen Rwanda being a country with which we have an agreement, is that a majority of these countries are also facing migration crises. In fact, a majority of the countries are European, and they've actually been looking very closely at the UK policy, which is very unusual. No other country in Europe is pursuing the same kind of policy that the UK government has been trying to do. The difference between the UK policy and, say, the policies that were seen suggested in Germany or pursued by Italy and Albania is offshoring. Italy will offshore all its asylum seekers to Albania. They'll be processed in Albania. But if they're found to be refugees in Albania, then they would be settled in Italy. The distinction of the UK policy is that it would send asylum seekers to a third country. Their claims would be assessed under that country's law, not UK law. And that if they're found to be a refugee in that country, they would then stay in that country as a refugee. In fact, this was something that was also so powerful in the Supreme Court judgment is they again looked at rejection rates. 
So where certain nationalities from war zone countries like Afghanistan, like Syria, like Yemen, had a 100% rejection rate in Rwanda, Rwanda would simply not accept anyone could be a refugee from one of those countries. If we look at similar rates in the UK, I think it's it's 98% for Afghanistan, it's 99% for Syria. There's simply not the same acceptance of refugee status between the two countries. Let's hear what James Cleverly told the BBC on Thursday morning about the changes that he is planning to make. So we don't believe that is necessary. We believe that we can put forward a set of plans which will bring us completely in accordance with international law. Can he do that? On the first point, whether or not a treaty will solve things, we can first look at precedent. The last time there was an issue with sending someone to another country to face trial, that was uh, Home Secretary, I can't remember how many Home Secretaries ago, Theresa May, and the Abu Qatada case. There was a treaty with Jordan which guaranteed the radical cleric a fair trial in Jordan. That met human rights standards, that, that met the ECHR case. That is a precedent for a treaty being used to solve issues. However, there are fundamental differences between the Abu Qatada case and the Rwanda case, which involves not just one individual, but potentially hundreds or thousands a year, especially when the concerns are systemic in nature. They're about the legal system, the governance, the country itself, not just an individual instance. But even beyond that, something to emphasize both in terms of international law and a treaty, but also domestic law, if we see an act of parliament, is you can't legislate away international obligations. You can decide to leave treaties, you can try and renegotiate treaties, but an international obligation not to send someone to a country where they face threats to their life or their freedom cannot simply be written away if the threat still exists. Very simply, the law cannot say something is safe if it is not factually safe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Cleverly is trying to get around this by saying that Rwanda and the UK have been working together to improve Rwanda's ability to deal with asylum seekers properly. And so the evidence the Supreme Court was basing its judgment on was now out of date. The implication, I suppose, being that they could go ahead and now it wouldn't be out of date. But that doesn't really apply, does it? Because the court would need to look at the evidence again in order to be sure that he could do that. Yes, exactly. One point that Supreme Court did emphasise is right now it's not safe. It didn't say that in future it would still not be safe, Mm. but that would still require an evaluation. So we'd have to see the latest evidence that it is a safe country. And not just Rwanda saying, yeah, of course, we're safe now. We've done these things and, you know, it's going to be fine. The Supreme Court did acknowledge that Rwanda's assurances were made in good faith. But much like the Court of Appeal, they paced far more emphasis on the United Nations evidence on the ground. The United Nations has been there for decades. It's still there. And so if new evidence were coming, 
it should also be convincing from the United Nations perspective. Because this is something that Rwanda has a big financial interest in making work. I mean, we've already spent, I think, £140 million, or is it £180 million on this scheme? And presumably it may be in line for more if any asylum seekers are actually sent to Rwanda. So it's got every interest, hasn't it? It would be very interesting to see what the treaty says. In fact, there was an element of the treaty that I'm already seeing uh, debated on Twitter that was a line promising to address the Supreme Court's concerns by requiring that Rwanda did not send asylum seekers or did not send anyone sent to Rwanda onto a different country. That creates a bit of a conundrum because the only country they could send them to then is back to the UK. So we create a rather difficult situation in which failed asylum seekers to Rwanda are returned to the UK. Which is hardly what the government wants, is it? <laughs> hardly. It also, as, as one colleague of mine pointed out, it creates a false incentive that you would want to fail the refugee process in Rwanda in order to get sent back to the UK. But also it creates a legal problem for the government because right now British law, the Illegal Migration Act, bans anyone who's been sent to a third country from ever returning to the UK. There's a lot of debate about whether Rishi Sunak will eventually decide to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights. Although, as you pointed out earlier, it's not just the convention that this plan is in breach of. But what would be the implications if Britain decided not to actually pull out of the European Convention formally, but just basically flout it and just do what it wanted, but not pull out? Is that so, is that thinkable? Because I haven't really heard that scenario talked about much. What would be the implications of that for Britain? Two immediate implications. The first is damage to the UK's, frankly, very strong international human rights reputation, especially before the European Court of Human Rights. The UK has one of the best human rights records before the court. But you're absolutely right. The court relies on the individual states to remedy their own problems. They can't put a court in jail. So the responsibility for courts to uphold judgments, to to remedy violations, is up to the country themselves. We could see a situation in which the government did decide to simply ignore the court. It would damage its reputation. It would certainly damage any kind of negotiating position it has with third countries, arguing that it should pay attention to human rights. But ultimately, there wouldn't be much more than that. But if we start thinking if systematically the UK is ignoring the ECHR, then it does become quite an international problem for the UK, especially in terms of the EU and the Good Friday Agreement. The big reason that the UK would violate international law, violate its international agreement, is the Good Friday Agreement requires the UK to be part of the ECHR. There's no negotiating around that. There's no changing rules or changing domestic law. The UK has to be part of the ECHR because Northern Ireland has to have the ECHR. If the EU found that the UK was systematically ignoring its human rights violations, then there could be consequences, certainly consequences in terms of that that relationship. The EU has already put it in the trade and cooperation agreement that the UK has to pay attention to human rights. But beyond that, they issued a rather strong statement saying that if the UK leaves the ECHR, or again, an extremist, wasn't within this, this statement, but we can imagine if it starts just wholesale ignoring its human rights obligations, then they will suspend cooperation in criminal and judicial matters. 
What that means in practice is the EU has indicated that if the UK starts ignoring or avoiding its international obligations before the ECHR, then it will stop allowing extradition of EU citizens or even British citizens to UK courts to face trial, simply because it does not trust the UK will protect human rights. This is all extreme scenarios, but very simply, if the UK government introduced a law which said ignore the courts or ignore human rights or ignore interim measures, that's Rule 39 orders from the, the Court of uh, Human Rights, or simply ignore obligations that we have in international law and even domestic law, then the legal effect wouldn't change. But the damage to reputation, the damage to the negotiating position, the damage to the UK government as a leader in so many of these issues would be immense. And this is what Lord Sumption was alluding to today, the ex-Supreme Court Justice, isn't it? When he said, I've never heard of them trying to change the facts by law for as long as black isn't white, the business of passing Acts of Parliament. To say that it is, is profoundly discreditable. And that is kind of judge speak, profoundly discreditable for absolutely batshit, isn't it? I mean, Lord Sumption has said a lot of very, very strong statements, but my gosh, that one certainly stood out to me when I read it this morning. So finally, we're just running out of time for this. I mean, we've got probably a government with another year in it, maximum, I would say at this point. Is that enough time to try to fight this in the courts? Or is this just going to be kicked down the road and ultimately a Labour government will abandon the plan? Right now, there's nothing to fight in the courts. But if we see an act of parliament, that, that black is white comment from Lord Sumption, if we see an act of parliament that says Rwanda is safe for the purpose of the law. Well, first off, I really doubt that it's going to get quickly through the parliament. Even if Rishi Sunak was able to get it through the commons with his current majority, the Lord's will really look at this very, very closely. There'll be very close scrutiny of it, especially considering the weight of evidence, the unanimous decision that came from the Supreme Court yesterday. The government doesn't control the Lord's timetable. It can say it's emergency legislation, but it's ultimately up to the Lords as to whether or not they think it is emergency or, or fast-tracked legislation. In extremists, we could see the Lords delaying this as long as possible, which I think can be up to a year or 13 months. And so unless Rishi Sunak wants to hold a general election on this issue in January 2025 in the depths of winter, I think it's very unlikely that we are going to see the law passed. And even if the law is passed, there'll be challenges, it will stop challenges. I think it's very, very unlikely for us to see the Rwanda policy, or rather planes taking off to Rwanda in the spring, as promised. Thank you so much, Joelle. You're so welcome. Roz, it's always such a delight to chat with you. Oh, feelings mutual. And if you enjoyed hearing Joelle today, you can support us to keep making bunkers for as little as three quid a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Roz Taylor, and thanks for listening. written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate. Audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.